Welcome to the show. This is the Magician and the Fool podcast, episode number 55. My name is Dominic. I am one of the co-hosts of the show. The other host is Janus, and you will hear him after this little intro is done. Today we are thrilled to welcome back artist, musician, mystic, Nicholas Schreck. If you haven't heard him on the show before, um, we have had him on for the last four Halloweens, so I would recommend going back to listen to those episodes eventually. They are all extremely good, in my opinion. Nicholas is the author of such books as um, Demons of the Flesh, Flowers from Hell, The Satanic Screen, and The Manson File. I believe all of which are going into a uh, second publication and which will be more more available in the near future. So keep an eye out for, for all of that. The Manson file will also be available for the first time in the UK. You can check out what Nicholas has going on and look for updates on his website, nicholasschreck.world, N-I-K-O-L-A-S, S-C-H-R-E-C-K dot world. And you can also find his music on Bandcamp. This guy never stops working. He's always putting out something new. I know he's working on a few books at the moment. Um, One is about magic, and that is what we will be talking about today. Essentially, the metaphysics of magic, the reality versus the fantasy. And we will also be covering a truly terrifying subject, something to accent the horror theme of the season, since it is Halloween. We will be talking about anatta, or anatman, no-self, or non-self. And that's scary because, for many of us, everything we say and do, the people we associate with, the music we listen to, the clothes we wear, are all a reflection of of, on one hand, our self-identity, and on the other hand, a reinforcer of our self-identity. And we have oftentimes put decades of work into these carefully and meticulously crafted personas. So to then turn around and say that it's all just an illusion and a potential hindrance to enlightenment or liberation, that could be very painful to come to grips with and something easily ignored because it is so painful and difficult. It also brings into question all of our attachments. Attachments to things, to people, to relationships, all those things that reinforce our sense of self. And it brings into focus our spiritual motivations as well. Are our spiritual and religious practices actually adding to and reinforcing our ego, and our sense of a discrete and permanent self. We try to tackle this and much more in the episode, so stay tuned. 
I would like to say thank you to all of our Patreon supporters for partnering with us and helping make this possible. Running a podcast not only takes time and energy, but it also does take some money to put together. So what we get from Patreon really does help keep the show running. If you'd like to help us and join in on this little experiment, please head over to Patreon, look us up, and help us however you feel you can. We dedicate this to Hermes and Asclepius. May any merits that we accumulate doing this work be distributed to all sentient beings so that they, together with us, may equally realize awakening. Okay, welcome to the show, everyone. We are super excited, as always, to welcome back for the fourth year in a row, uh, International Man of Mystery, Nicholas Schreck. Welcome to the show, Nicholas, once again. I am, I am shaking with excitement, too, like a, like a dog that just came in from the rain. <laughs> welcome back. Be, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Happy Halloween to your listeners yeah happy halloween everybody and uh, a big welcome to nicholas uh let's just jump right in because we always have so much to discuss and it's always so fun so i was i've been to a haunted house or two this season and it's got me thinking this is kind of connecting to something we discussed in a prior episode Mm -hmm. about the monster you know sort of the monsters especially when you when you say you were at a haunted house do you mean a a halloween haunted house made to scare customers or an actual haunted house no an actual you know um, halloween haunted house like a seasonal festivity um Mm -hmm. have been in haunted i have been in authentic haunted houses too but it made me think about how we discussed in a prior episode how the sort of quaternio of the universal monsters kind of could represent uh, wrathful deities in a sense. This mm-hmm. had me thinking about how the passage through the haunted house is like the passage through the duat uh, for the departed soul in the Egyptian metaphysics. Mm-hmm. Because in the yeah. duat, you're passing through the gates, and there's often... You know, the departed soul is encountering uh, terrible spirits, monsters, which are all threatening their their ka as it moves through the afterlife world to the more blessed abode. And I was mm-hmm. wondering what your thoughts might be on that. Right, and and the interesting thing, it's interesting too that the that the so called the description of the passage to the duat that we have the most accurate one except for some tomb renderings, is what is falsely called the Egyptian Book of the Dead, but that's the popular name for it, and the, and then also falsely named Tibetan Book of the Dead, the passage from one bardo to the next, and what the spirit encounters as they move from one incarnation to the next, is very similar, 
And I've always thought that it's clearly the, the, the Egyptian cosmology, the approach to how consciousness leaves the body and goes through this journey is, is very, very similar with some culturally dictated differences to the Tibetan Book of the Dead of Tantric Buddhism or the Book of Liberation by Hearing. So yeah, I would agree that in our desiccated atheistic culture, cut off from the taproot of spirituality and of the gods and of the different realms of the spiritual world, horror, the whole genre of horror and and the supernatural fiction and supernatural manifestations in pop culture are really some of the very few ways that, that modern humans ever encounter these things. And, and I think, therefore, it's a very important genre in that it may be the only way that human beings encounter spiritual phenomena whatsoever. And certainly appropriate uh, uh, at Halloween to bring up the encounter with death. I mean, the popularity of the horror genre is largely based on a, on a, a kind of safe way for mortal beings to confront their own mortality. So, yes, I, you know, but that's a very desiccated... I love horror movies, and of course they have had a big influence on me, but it's unfortunate that that's probably the only time and the only way that modern humans come to grips with the very serious topic of mortality and the afterworld and even things like ghosts, which are a significant spiritual issue. Absolutely. And isn't it funny? I was just discussing with somebody today the game of Senet that was played by ancient Egyptians. And Mm -hmm. especially towards the New Kingdom period, it became a depiction of the passage through the Duat. So there was a game that would be played that would train people on post-mortem experience. That's how Mm -hmm. integrated it was in that culture. And then we get to today with, with this culture of inversion. And it's just such an interesting contrast. Well, yes, uh, every not every part. I mean, we don't want to romanticize antiquity completely, but singing, for the most part, was prayer and invocation. Art was mostly religious in nature, invocatory, or creating a magical alternate universe. Um, the arts were religious or magical activities and games i mean you have this also in aztec culture mayan culture in in many different ancient cultures games were an initiatory training tool and now you know we're we're lucky if a game even touches on uh usually in a very juvenile way fantasy elements of the supernatural but yes it's 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 like you say an inverted culture uh, and, and again, I'm not romanticizing ancient culture, it's just that in antiquity, human beings were obviously much more connected to the gods and to the supernatural realms of being as a completely normal part of reality. And in the Kali Yuga that we live in now, especially in the Western world, but unfortunately increasingly in the Westernized East, uh, contact to any kind of initiatory training is almost zero which is a, is a truly horrifying thing. It is a horrifying thing. It's incredible. And the game, the game piece, <laughs> so to speak, is 
also interesting because games are always associated with magic and they're often associated with gods of magic and spirits of magic because gameplay gameplay has elements that are directly related to the processes of practical magic itself we can only all we need to do is think about how playing cards have been employed as divinatory and magical instruments or even the chessboard with its 64 squares uh, mirroring the planetary square of mercury and the dark and light representing the you know and and that kind of brings me to our topic which is magic itself the realities of it versus the pretend little dress up fun time on instagram right right and and we should address we we do have to to disassemble and deconstruct the the false ideas and misunderstandings about magic that are so prevalent but it's interesting as far as games go i mean this is perhaps a good way to dive into the subject of magic uh i've mentioned this before in sanskrit uh, the phrase lila means the play of the gods. And some an aspect of performing magic, of being a sorcerer, of being a magician, is seeing reality as a game. Not, not for entertainment, although it can be entertaining, certainly, but understanding almost in the same terms that a think tank would use game theory to test a reality, you have to have a sense of playfulness, uh, almost a childish joy or wonder at looking at the mystery and adventure of the mind and of magic and of the cosmos to be a decent magician. And that's usually, that's often very lacking. So I think that's probably a good place to begin because I, I think very few magical instruction books, the, the very shallow ones that are on offer these days. Now, and, and the problem with, if I say playfulness, or that joy and ga- a game approach to magic is important, that can make people think I'm being frivolous or trivialize it. Mm-hmm. But as you've said, you know, games were serious in ancient times, and they did touch on spiritual structures and foundations as a, as a kind of initiatory tool. But in the same way, I've often noticed that the creation of art requires a game approach to it, and criminality. Criminals think of life as a game. And so magic, art, and crime are all looking at reality from a bit of a distance, whereas the usual semi-comatose sleepwalking state of consciousness that most people are in, they don't have any distance from their life or from the, from the structure of reality. But crime, art, and magic sort of are, are very similar in way of a way to look at the world as a game. Like, you, do you have to play by the rules that convention has set down? Or could you go another way? Could you go... Could you go left? Could you turn right? Could you could you approach reality in a completely different way? And this kind of creative thinking is required to create an artwork, to pull off a crime, or to create magic. And I think in the ancient world, these three things went very much together, which is one reason 
that Hermes, a god that I know is important to you, is um, also a go the god of, of criminals and of thieves. It's true. He's the prince of thieves. And it's interesting you bring this up. It One thing that it makes me think of as well as the idea in a, in a reality, in a reality, a world ruled by a confederacy of dunces is true art a thought crime. Yes. It, it, and well, in the, in the world we're living in increasingly. So in fact, if, if I would say that real art, true art, if one can speak of such a thing that isn't kitsch or just escapist entertainment, art, that is that has depth and meaning reflects reality reflects truth objective truth absolute truth it says something about human nature or reality that that no uh, science can't tell you but art can tell you the way reality is and these days any art that actually sh presents an actual mirror to reality is forbidden because we live in a time that is so filled with ideological falsehood that the real reality is almost a forbidden or taboo topic. Mm -hmm. So yes, I, th I think that's a very important part of it. And, and to be a magician, I mean, maybe the fourth thing, uh, an approach to life that becomes initiatory, if we include the artist, the criminal, the magician, is the warrior. A general has to look at reality in a very objective, no-nonsense way, in the same way that the other three creators have to look at it. And so I think in magic, there is, a, there is an element in which it is an art, in which it is warfare, in the sense that, that William S. Burroughs, who understood something about the bridge between magic and art, said this is a war planet. So... You know, there, there, there's a, a thin line between those things, art, crime, magic, and war. And I think, you know, the, the listener who is beginning to approach magic should think about that, that, that that's a particular approach to the world that is required. You need, you need to have a sense of distance and detachment from the world to be a decent magician. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. And I would say in the positive sense of the word rather than the negative sense, in the platonic sense of the word, art is a, true art is a form of demiurgy. It's, it is a magical act. And I know right. you view your art that way. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, I've said this before on your very show, so I will, I will just uh, sum it up without being too redundant. I mean, one of my particular personal approaches to the way I do magic, not the only one, but a, a consistent one is, as you say, and, and, I, and you're not, I know you're not using the word demiurge, you're using it in the literal true sense of the meaning rather than in the negative connotation that Gnosticism has yes. as, as a, a craftsman, a creator, the craftsman. So a lot of my magic is creating an alternate universe in a song, in a, in a book, in a film, or in any kind of artistic medium. And any artist could do that. A dancer could do it. A photographer could do it. A poet could do it. Um, you create a microcosm, and that microcosm becomes the macrocosm. 
Now, you could literally be an artist, a writer, a musician, a filmmaker, a dancer, a singer, or any number of arts. Uh, but even if you're not literally an artist, the act of magic is an art as much as a science. So I think any act of magic is always create, is being a demiurge, creating a very credible and realistic alternate universe, even if it's a very miniature one. And that universe, you have to... This requires a leap of imagination in the truest sense of the word. That microcosm becomes the whole summum bonum of reality. And only with that leap of faith that you actually see this alternate universe you create through magic as the entire cosmos can you create the change that you wish to create, whatever it may be. So we could actually articulate the idea of art as a form of theurgic demiurgy in the creation of a pattern through sound or image that uh, sets into motion a current of manifestation that's a reflection of the original intention of its creator, which if the creator is in harmony with divine principles, then in turn uh, transmits the divine principles through the artistic creator into the world, effectuating true change. Yes, your listeners should write it down. That's a better description of magic and a more precise and, and lucid one than, than Aleister Crowley's hackneyed and brief one. Uh, yes, that's exactly what's required. One way or the other, that's what a ritual or a ceremony of magic has to be. What you just described is perfectly articulated. Now, the thing is, and I've mentioned this before too, everybody is doing magic and, and that's, it's a terribly overused word that is loaded with so much fantasy in this Harry Potter universe mm -hmm. that, that unfortunately people don't take it as a, as a real phenomenon that is deeply embedded in human consciousness. The thing is, the artist or the magician sets out to create a demiurgic alternate world that by the very creation of it, by the creation of this skillfully constructed microcosmic, which, as you said, should be based on traditional classical demiurgic principles uh, um, of traditional divine foundations and structures, which that requires you being an initiate. That's a whole other part of this um, paradox. You have to be an initiate. You have to be training your mind in the first place to even be able to do magic. Right, so, right. So... So by creating this microcosm, you create a macrocosm, a, mic a macrocosmic transformation and change. Now, a very good artist might not be a magician at all. So somebody could, for instance, and, and you see this in folklore and, and horror short, short stories going back forever, an artist could be so skilled that they capture something in a painting or a photograph that changes reality. Many authors who don't believe themselves to be practicing magic have gotten so caught up in their fictional world that they have prophesied or even written down something that happens in reality that's, that's uncanny in its precise um, doppelganger relation to reality. 
And then, and then cinema, I would say particularly, and, and I've also stated this several times, but I think it's important. And in my book on magic, I have a whole chapter about this, my forthcoming book that will be coming out on a U.S. publisher next year. Two of the most important magical tools that have ever been existed, the photograph and the moving photograph and all the medium, you know, now video and digital videography, and the tape recorder, to be able to fix sound permanently and to fix a moving image, that is the, you know, for millennia, that, that is what magicians have tried to do. And we take that for granted. Mm-hmm. A skilled magician with any kind of camera and any kind of tape recording device has an unbelievably powerful atom bomb of a magical tool because... And, and look how much film and cinema and, and popular music has shaped our reality. There's a reason for that, because it, it is the most powerful microcosm creation that goes under the radar of logic and rationality and complete, makes a completely convincing emotional experience that hits the limbic system on a deep level with, and bypasses logic and suspension of reality. So, you know, uh, the most banal pop music is a kind of black magic. When you go into a supermarket and you hear this horrible, banal, cliched, popular music that's playing there, it's creating a black magical trance of consumerism. And that's, Absolutely. And now, these people don't set out to do that. They know that it will be played in such places and that it will have no hard edges and have nothing... Nothing real about it. There'll be nothing real to awaken people. It will keep them in a trance. So well, that is a kind, a kind of very dangerous magic that's being done. Well, let me pause you there, too, because it's you, anybody familiar with advertising knows that advertising is... Any magician familiar with advertising is fully aware of the fact that advertising is a form of black magic. And in the... I mean, it, preceding the 1960s, but the 60s is when the momentum really began to ramp up where subliminal messages were introduced into popular jingles to sell people things. And now Mm -hmm. that has been integrated into popular music. So there is quite literally a form of uh, post-hypnotic suggestion being used in, in the, the banal uh, popular music to manipulate people into conforming to certain behavioral patterns and becoming uh, the ideal consumer as well. Right, exactly. And and now the student of magic, I mean, the cliche would be that if, if somebody is beginning the pursuit of magic, and I'm not a snob about that. Many of my students that I teach three times a week are, are novices, and I treat them with respect. A lot, a lot of Spiritual teachers have a kind of elitist attitude about this. Everyone has to begin somewhere. And I think you shouldn't really begin with looking at ancient grimoires and magical texts, but exactly what what you said. Look at how modern society, consumer capitalist society, how advertising, that it permeates our consciousness and bombards us 24 hours a day, especially in the digital age, with everything we look at, having a corporate logo, a jingle, you know, every app you turn on, there's a little jingle to to identify its corporate identity. 
that is black magic that you are you are being manipulated by symbolism and there's something to learn in that how how do modern people trapped in the machinery of the capitalist consumer lifestyle which is almost everybody unless you've gone off the grid and made made real uh, heroic efforts to break from it you need to look at that mechanism to see that's the prison we are trapped in it's a very pleasant prison of pop music of jingles of of pleasant and and bland corporate logos to keep us soothed and to keep us shopping and to keep us scrolling and to keep us caught up in this false world that that has really we've all sunk into since the 90s pretty much so well and i wanted to backtrack a minute because your point about film was so poignant the i i know a i i i know a inspired and talented photographer she really prefers to only use actual film and we we've had conversations about the magical nature of film itself the way that especially in early film the use of silver the way that you have a negative Mm -hmm. this is all very lunar the alchemical process of taking a negative and turning it into a photograph that's alchemy right there you're doing Mm -hmm. it in a room that is completely dark dark a dark room what could be more symbolic absolutely (laughs) It's incredible how magical true photography via via digital digital photography, the the analog process of original photography is, it's implicitly magical in all of its steps. Yes. Well, well, what you just said, I actually have a paragraph or two in a chapter beginning uh, of the updated edition of the Satanic Screen in which I describe how Really, f- f- cinema died when we stopped using celluloid, when we stopped making film. There's a number of other magical aspects to cinema that we need to discuss, but to reiterate the ones you said, absolutely, that there's nothing more magical than watching an image appear on that blank piece of photographic paper with the red light in the dark room. I mean, that that is... A magical manifestation of alchemy, as you said, and the use of silver nitrate, and something about the alchemical nature of celluloid, even though it's a plastic, there is something much more powerful about films created on celluloid than films created in the digital medium. They're much you can feel it. Yeah, yes, they, they have a tangibility and a depth. It's a world that you can almost sink into, and I'm, I think probably generations that aren't used to that don't see the difference. But really, if you, you know, and actually one of the most powerful magicians I know was a photographer that I knew in the 80s who used photography in that way, very deliberately. Every single ritual they did was using photography to recreate reality, and they were very successful in doing it. So... I think an overarching theme here is magic does not necessarily require, although you could, but it's a bit antiquarian and, and not really necessary, to, ha- to be sitting in a room in a robe with the proper sword, bell, and all the accoutrements and regalia of traditional ceremonial magic. Um, 
bringing any kind of tape recording device or film recording device or video recording device out into reality and and reshuffling and re-editing reality by using it is by far the most direct and effective way to change reality. The final thing about film, before we move into another topic, is mm-hmm. the the light going through celluloid and being projected is very much a part of the magical power of cinema and its hypnotic effect on audiences when audiences collectively sat in a movie palace together and had this cinematic experience. That is not going to happen on your home screen on Netflix. It's just well, not going to happen. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, but there is actually a film. It's maybe the rarest film in the world or one of them. It is a real thing. It is historical. I believe there is a documentary available on it. It has, every time it was shown, people committed suicide in the audience. Um, Theaters burned down. It was considered to be a cursed film. Um, And... You know, it was truly a magical film. I think, I mm-hmm. believe it was supposed to have depicted hell or something. And they've destroyed most of the copies, but there's still a copy or two left somewhere out there. And every time over over history, this film has been shown, there have been catastrophes associated right. with it immediately. Right. I, I am very familiar with that. And without getting into the details, one of the novels that I'm working on Sort of my life plan is now that all of these non-fiction books that I've put out are, are coming out in Ultimate Editions. The Manson File is out in its final Ultimate Manifestation, The Satanic Screen, Flowers from Hell. Uh, the next phase will be a series of novels, and one of them is a two-part novel that, get, that is about a fictional silent film director and his muse, who who is an actress, a, a, a you know a glamorous film icon, and their relationship, but they create a film in the 1920s that is exactly like what you described. Mm. So that's a, that's a theme of and and it was during my writing of the Satanic Screen and looking into ancient lenses and how gla- how glass lenses were made in very early antiquity and projections and the magical use of prototypical film apparatus like the magic lantern sort of inspired me to look deeper into that. So kind of to come full circle to what we were talking about, this novel that I'm writing about a film of that type and the director of it and an actress who are sort of trapped in the film is a perfect metaphor for this microcosm macrocosm so that's very appropriate that you brought that up that's very cool and yeah um very interesting um i wanted to backtrack just a second um you guys already highlighted the potential dangers um of this kind of reality creation in the hands of say like advertisers and corporations or people who who really don't know what they're doing but even when you're doing it right even with films that are done uh, quote-unquote right or um, music or uh, art i I Mm -hmm. think there's still a danger and you you talked about it earlier this idea of reality i think there's still a danger in losing track of 
of actual reality, um, especially in the in the occult world and the in the magical world, where people are kind of creating their own realities. There is that double-edged sword where you lose sight of you know the forest for the trees or you know, the finger mm-hmm. pointing at the moon or however else you want to put it. Um, there is a chance that you can actually veer off the path away from actual reality. Well, that's a very good point. And I would say the antidote to that, which many modern people with their anti-authoritarian individualist approach to things, you need a teacher. You mm-hmm. need yeah. a guide to keep you grounded. And I should just say this because there are so many false teachers out there. You have some sort of spiritual teacher who is who is basically not slapping you back to reality. That is the job of a spiritual teacher, to keep you grounded, not to give you some pleasant escapism to go float off into a cloud of opiate paradise, but to keep you grounded and to to keep you on the path. And to and and anybody working with magic, there is a danger, of course, of of going too far into the ethereal sphere and and the elements have to be in balance. I mean, this is such a basic thing, but human beings have lost all contact. Every single spiritual tradition on this planet and probably any other planet and other dimensions has to be based on the balance of the four elements. And the one that's missing with most people who get involved in magic or what they call occultism uh, are lacking the earth element. They're just floating in outer space in fantasy land. And that, that's a very dangerous escapism, you know, that, that, that is not going to initiate you or liberate you or free you. It's going to trap you deeper into samsara. And this is the reason you need a teacher to keep you grounded. You need, it's like an astronaut needs ground control to keep you on the path. And it's sort of like taking a psychedelic trip, unless you're a very experienced and theogenic adventure, you need somebody there to keep you grounded. So that is a very traditionalist way of looking at magic, is that you should report back to a teacher who you trust, who keeps you on earth and doesn't let you float off while you're spacewalking. Right, right. And I agree 1000%. And you had mentioned initiation earlier, which made me kind of think of that question. And, you know, on one hand, I can't necessarily blame people because the ratio of actual teacher to student is is wildly out of balance um, mm-hmm. based on the amount of uh, information being streamed either through books or uh, or the internet. So the amount of people actually delving into these topics is probably the highest it's ever been in, in the history of the world. Um, and there are really only so many competent teachers out there. Um, any thoughts on, you know, the reality of, of people not having a competent teacher? It, yes. That's a good way yeah, to ground. I think, I, think, I think that's a very urgent and, and practical topic. One thing that I experience as a teacher is people are, have always for decades come to me. And for some reason, someone who is approaching the initiatory path will say, well, what organization do you recommend I join? You know, that's their first question. What group should I join? As if that is the be-all and end-all of initiation, finding mm-hmm. the right group. 
And after my own uh, nightmarish experiences with, I have never been a joiner much, but, but in my, I have through my research and through the people I've known encountered most of the well-known magical associations, orders, and groups, without naming them, I don't really want to get into mm -hmm. uh, the personalities and biography, because it doesn't matter, because they're all the same. So my advice would be, you do not want to begin your magical training in a group or an order. And, and I wish people would banish that idea that, that the beginning of magical initiation is to join some group or the other. I don't know of any that is not a personality cult that ultimately becomes an ego control mechanism. I don't mm -hmm. know of any, I've never seen any, that doesn't become that. So right. I don't know what you think about that, but I think that's a very important lesson to, as, as far as approaching what you're discussing. Don't get involved. Don't do the opposite, to be counterintuitive. Study the real world. Don't get lost in some somebody's magical system. Mm -hmm. some, some somebody who invented something in 1842 or or last week. Don't I tend to agree. Up. I yeah. tend to agree, and I would say I would I would differ with you on the one point, and I don't even know if we're differing here, but I do know that there are reputable groups of noble people who do work together towards common goals. But those orders are often very quiet, um, often they're invitation only, and they avoid the limelight and often operate in anonymity. And mm -hmm. again, those are more like and those are more like focus groups rather than you know general schools, I think. Uh, right. I want to go backwards to something though, because I, you mentioned uh, I could not get out of my mind how uh, you mentioned the light moving through the celluloid. Because mm -hmm. this is also something that I have con contemplated. I have often thought about the analogical uh, comparison between the projection of, of the light through the film and the projection of reality through the mind. We see this in dream yoga even, where if you mm -hmm. are able to make the transition from waking to dreaming consciousness, you will see first a light, and then the light becomes forms, and then the forms become the dream. And in the same right. way, reality is a projection of mind. Uh, it's it's almost it's almost an identical process in 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 so many Absolutely. ways. Absolutely, yes, mm -hmm. yes, <laughs> and and dream. I mean, we that that could be a whole subject in itself. The dream bardo is a very powerful arena to do magic in. If you can master lucid dreaming, and perform ritual magic of all kinds within the dream state, that is the perfect microcosm, even better than an art form, uh, to in which to use as a ritual chamber. So if you can master lucid dreaming or, or dream yoga, um, that that's the perfect way to change this reality. That that and because they are they are mirror alternate dimensions of each other. So that's a very rich field for magicians to explore, which can easily turn into fantasy and escapism, unfortunately. Like any powerful magical tool, it's dangerous. It's very easy to get caught up in the dream world. Uh, the, the human urge to, for escapism is so great, again, you've got to stay grounded.
Well, and then we have Leela and Maya being sort of very closely associated terms in the ancient Sanskrit sources. And sometimes Maya or Shakti, the goddess, is depicted as a um, as a spider weaving a web that we can very easily become caught in. Right. Right. Well, t that's what Tantra means, is a web, a, w a woven web, like, like, a, like a seamstress or, or like the Norns. Um, and that web, like Maya, the double meaning of it in, in the pan-Indian tradition, Maya is reality, this illusion, but it's also a deceptive, hypnotic, fake reality. It's both of them. So, yeah, it's very important not to get caught up in these dream worlds and to keep bringing yourself back to Earth so that you don't completely float off into fantasy. Which Now, two things that I think we haven't mentioned about magic that, that need to be brought up. One, sort of like a lot of people drawn to magic have this idea of I am creating my own reality and, and I don't need a teacher and, and that's, that's a totally postmodern uh, Frankfurt School way of looking at magic. That, that is not what magic is. It is not creating your own individualistic, anarchic reality. It is actually bringing your mortal chaos into accordance with divine structures and principles. It's quite the opposite, if you understand what I mean by that. Yes, absolutely. And... I, that brings me to another point, order and chaos. These are mm -hmm. perennial issues. And in the world of the magician, it could be said that the magician is creating order of a certain kind. And when we're setting into motion patterns that then influence reality, it is really dependent also on the fact that Yes, the magician may be quote unquote creating their own reality, but there is already a reality in place. And if you act in if you if you act in a way that is contrary to the laws of reality out of ignorance or out of arrogance, it's not going it, at best it's not going to work. At worst you're going to have a rebound. Right. And actually that brings me to the second point. That's a very very important foundational point that you mentioned, the most important thing about ignoring reality that magicians and occultists do is to not take into account karma, which, and that is such a misunderstood term, which simply means action, cause and effect. That's unbelievable, and, um, Nicholas. I was actually going to ask you that next. <laughs> Well, we're, Keep going. we're just yeah, like, it's sorry. like a, it's like a triangular telepathic thing when, when we, and this is how magic works. We, we have all come together from three different places for this ritual, for this ceremony, and we're disciplining our mind to stay focused on this topic. Even though we're digressing, we're pretty, doing a good job of all three of us. We're not only expressing our personal view. We are trying to get across to your listeners uh, accurate depiction of the reality of magic. So that creates a telepathic field. So that's interesting to point out even in the midst of what we're doing. Yeah. This is how magic operates. Um, so this is a great flaw in most ma people's magical practice is this sort of American consumerist point of view of magic. You can be anything you want. You can do anything you want. 
Well, no, you can't, because you are bound by your past lives and the karma of everything you've said, everything you've thought, and everything you've done with your body. So, for instance, if you are a pauper and you want to do a magical ceremony to become a millionaire tomorrow, you have to purify your karma that made you impoverished first. It's the cha- a lot of the changes that people wish to create are, are obstacles within them because they have not purified their karma. If you want to do a ritual to heal yourself, there's a reason you got sick. And you have to, maybe what it all comes down to, accepting responsibility for your own life. And understanding there are, unlike what the New Age teaches, or things like the secret, or, you know, witch talk, kindergarten ideas of manifesting stuff just by thinking about it, which is Mm -hmm. idiotic and, and, you know, dangerously narcissistic even, uh, we have limitations that are based on karma. If the world is treating you a certain way, you better pay attention to the way the world is treating you because you made it that way through your karma. So the magician has to think, if I have a magical goal, which is not the only purpose of magic, but that's a a very common one, to have goal A and then set out to achieve it, you need to be sure that your karma is even capable of that. And if it isn't, then that gets into initiation and that gets into mysticism And that gets into ethics, which is also something most magicians would prefer not to think about. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you have been a horrible person in one aspect of your life, if you have been an unethical person, you're going to have a deficiency in your life that's going to be difficult to, to transcend. And therefore, you need to become a better person to be a better magician. And nobody wants to hear that, because that's very hard work. And it's not fun... It's not romantic. It's, it's getting deep into your psyche and, and purifying your negative karma. Right. Exactly. I hope, I hope I've made that clear. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you see that in, in tantric circles where everyone wants to do all this tantric stuff, these empowerments and all this stuff, but they forget about the actual precepts, which are, like you were saying, like kind of a moral foundation, an ethical foundation to then build on. You, you can't start with all the crazy stuff the quote-unquote cool stuff um, and then just disregard the actual foundation absolutely and you know this is interesting to me because it also has to do with another aspect here right because nicholas you're talking about self-improvement but you're also talking about self-creation of course Mm -hmm. i'm coming from the egyptian theology when i think about self-creation and the idea of the god kepri Um, there's a there's a sort of spell that goes to paraphrase, by coming into being, I give birth to myself, and thus establish the way of coming into being. Mm-hmm. The idea, though, I think, if we think about Thoth, who creates himself, who fashions himself from his own hands, right? Um, who gives birth to himself. Um, but the idea is that the magician creates themselves because of the because of the relationship between the microcosm and the macrocosm. But ultimately, this goes back to the idea of no actual original self or personality. You can change your personality. You can create yourself, but you have to be able to destroy yourself too. 
Correct. Now that's a very important point, and we will use that as a pivot point to get into our second subject. But before we do, the very important point for, for people beginning an initiatory path is there's a very common idea in modern and postmodern magical ideology that this is all about I'm, I'm my own god and I'm creating my own self completely. But that's usually based on an egotistical idea, and this is what often groups offer, is ego stroking. We're all wonderful, and we think you're wonderful too, and you are joining this elite of perfect, wonderful people, and we will all jerk each other off about how wonderful we are. Mm-hmm. You have to deconstruct your flawed self. You have to, I think it is very difficult for most people who approach occultism and magic to admit that they are flawed. There is no reason to enter a course of initiation if you're already a perfect being. And this is a great deficiency I see, is you have to accept you, there are things to change about yourself. You need, as you said, uh, you, need, you need to destroy all of the things about yourself that are deficient, negative, blind, illusory, before you can properly become an initiate or a magician. Now, very few people want to undertake that repair work. They just want to put on the laurel leaves and pat themselves on the back that they are a living God without doing any of the work of reconstructing themselves from the bottom up. And that's a very painful difficult thing and it gets into again i'll mention this obscene word that many magicians don't want to hear (laughs) ethics ethics and being for instance how many people i know that are are fairly respected magical teachers of all kinds and i won't name any names though i certainly could and i'm tempted to um who are liars who are just talking complete absolute bullshit who engage in libel, slander, gossip, what would be called in Buddhism, um, in German, unheilsame reda, or unwholesome speech. And what would Um, be called in Burroughs, the man who taught his asshole to talk. Exactly. And and he, and his, in vernacular way, uh, Burroughs is a good magical guide. Though he was flawed, he certainly understood the principles of magic. You could do worse than looking at Burroughs' fiction as a guide to magic, but if a, a spiritual teacher that is not ethical is no spiritual teacher at all, and that may seem like a radical concept in this morally relativistic world, but magic has to be based on the truth, and any spiritual initiate or practitioner, of course we all make mistakes and we go off the root of the truth into delusion, we all do, every minute. It's very difficult to stay on that path. But if you haven't made a decision to be ethical, in other words, to be honest, to do your very best to speak the truth as you see it, then you can't possibly do magic properly. And you shouldn't trust any teacher who isn't like that at all, not even for one second. I see very often people say, well, they're very colorful and they're very flamboyant and that's part of their their shtick, you know, but no, that that's totally unacceptable. That is not a genuine or authentic initiatory teaching if it's in any way based on dishonesty. So 
that would probably seem like a very radical idea these days where everything is show business everything is politics everything is spin if you if you merely adopted the spiritual principle of i'm going to be totally honest today your whole life would change very quickly you'd lose a lot of friends of course of course and once again it comes back to karma essentially yes and 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 that is so crucial so i want to underscore that point now that you mention it the key honesty is foundation number one trying to be in accord with reality as you actually objectively see it understanding that you could have a flawed perception Mm -hmm. but doing your best to use truth and honesty as your guide secondly that gets into karma if you are engaging in magic and and this is so elementary if you think you can do something to the outer so-called outer universe which i'm just meaning that in a relative way because there really is no outer or inner um and it won't have any consequences. This, let me just put this in huge, gigantic neon letters for your listeners. Think a billion times about the consequences of every action you make, of every word, of every thought, and of every physical movement. What are the karmic consequences of those actions? If you do that, that will, that will put you on the course of initiation more drastically than any uh, ideology. That, that's a practice we can all do, and it's crucial to performing magic properly. Extremely important, and it brings up another extremely important point. Um, notwithstanding the butterfly effect, you know, the idea that, say, a butterfly in South America, the, the effects of, its, of just the movement of its wings on the wind patterns creates a cyclone in another part of the world, right? So we don't always know what the effects of our actions are going to be. However, if you integrate into your practice benevolence towards all beings, like let this be to the benefit of all beings, um, Mm -hmm. let this be to the liberation of all beings, then your every act of magic you work becomes benevolent, becomes an act of benevolence towards everything else that right. exists and so you have you have a choice then between creating um, illusions that produce suffering or creating order that produces harmony right that's totally true and that brings me to another point which i accentuate to all of my students whatever i mean i teach people from every tradition though i am a tantric buddhist and a setian i will teach students from any spiritual tradition um underscoring your point if you do a ritual to heal yourself let's say when you do it that ritual should be to heal all ill or or ailing or sick beings in the entire six worlds of being uh if you do a ritual for to enrich yourself you should think let me be let this ritual work for everybody that needs financial wherewithal Mm. right now and that i think there are a lot of people who find like a lot of magicians find it difficult to bow down to some greater power they're so egotistical but exactly all of your magical acts karmically should be for the benefit of others if you're trying to destroy something negative in the world that is harmful you should do it for all beings. So that that's a very important point that you bring up. And thoughts, Nicholas, on on 
karmic remediation, for instance, like you had talked about the pauper earlier, there's not only our own karma that we create and continue uh, the momentum of into the future, but there's also the family karma that we are that we inherit, as well as karma, you know, from our past lives. It's interesting, um, even in Eamblichus, I'm just going to paraphrase um, the question I believe brought up to him is how could a good God be requested to do a bad thing to a good person? So talking about like, how can a magician ask a, a God, for instance, to curse someone who's good? And essentially, Iamblichus says that um, we are short-sighted in seeing that this person is truly good. Um, the gods, however, are able to see back into this person's previous lives and use that karma against them where they weren't necessarily good. So, well, none of none of us have could be completely good. This right. is a problem of of looking at the self in the wrong way. Right. We are we are the residue of a billion other selves, and and from the mystical metaphysical point of view, there is also no such thing as ultimate good or evil because we can't see the whole story from. Mm-hmm. An overview what what seems to be evil at this moment, and I understand this is a dangerous thing to say to an ignorant person, but if you are an, an initiate, something that seems extremely negative could have an extremely positive effect. A narcissist or a sociopath should not be the person who should be allowed to make that decision mm-hmm. but and something that seems and for, for instance, some of the worst most brutal, vicious, horrible people in the world are do-gooders who set out to do good and and create havoc and, mm-hmm. and torture. And, you know, so that's a very relative thing, and it's a very dangerous topic, this whole question of moral relativity. But, yeah, exactly, you're right. Now, the gods, and we haven't even gotten into the gods, and maybe that's a topic for a whole other show because it's so huge, Magic, as I understand it, is basically theurgy, is trying to raise human consciousness to the divine level of mentation during the ritual, and hopefully permanently. And if you're not doing that, that's already a major problem, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so you're trying to, to hook into this core wisdom of the, of the divine part of consciousness and get away from the mortal and animal consciousness, although those are useful phases of our thinking and our thought. So yes, what you're saying is true. The, div- the gods can see what, what the ultimate truth of something is. Not completely, because even the gods are not fully awakened, mm-hmm. but they are far more powerful than mortal beings. And, and if we're not... I mean, if this is such an important point. We need to get into it another time. Magic without incorporating the gods, the deities, the beings of all the various diva lokas is just an exercise in human fantasy, I, I believe. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's an exercise in hubris and arrogance. Um, and this goes back to the point we were discussing about the nature of the self, because people don't like the idea of of especially magicians, I think they they fear the idea of the loss of a self or the lack of a true self. 
Yeah, that's that's the next thing we should get into because it is essential to the practice of magic, but that leads us into a whole other separate topic. But I'm sorry, finish your thought. Um, it, well, I was going to say it leads. It, 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 the idea in Buddhism, for instance, is that this the temporary personality is an aggregate of elements. Mm -hmm. uh, I think people, especially due to the sort of initial Victorian translations of Buddhist texts, misunderstand and do not understand that um, though it is in some schools of Buddhism, there is an actual anatta or not, no real self. What it's referring mm -hmm. to is the egoistic personality. The temporary personality is unreal and phenomenal and right. composed of, of changing phenomenal elements. So the magician understanding this should be desiring to reshape themselves into a more suitable vehicle for the higher principles to act through so that the magician can become an instrument of that which is higher to and interior to themselves, but in the mysterious way, the most real part of themselves. Exactly. Well, the only thing that is real, actually, which is consciousness itself, removed from this temporary personality, which is, as you say, an aggregate. And again, going full circle to what we began with, it's interesting that the ancient Egyptians and the Tantric Buddhists look at, at the moment of death, that it is a, a, a series of aggregate levels of being separate from each other, not like the Hindu or Christian or Muslim idea of one Atman or a soul, but many disparate aspects of being actually incarnate into many different beings, not even the same one being. I mean, that's a very complicated metaphysical mm -hmm. concept. But, you know, when you, when you are reborn, aspects of yourself are reborn in other beings. They're not, they don't, oh, they don't usually all come together as one. So, yes. Uh, before we can get into the emptiness of the self, which, as you say, frightens people, we have to talk about emptiness in general. The reason that magic works is because we are operating in an illusion that is temporary. I mean, that, that's the first principle that has to be understood. The reason it works and even quantum physics illustrates this, is that this is not a solid material world. It is a metaphysical state of consciousness, and that's why mind over matter, so to speak, can, can manifest. So that, that's step one, is to understanding emptiness, understanding that we are performing magic within an illusion already, is why magic can work. Everything is impermanent, Therefore, a microcosmic ritual can change the macrocosm because we are dealing with the fluid stuff of an illusion. And getting to your point, the biggest illusion is that we are a sovereign being, a permanent entity, a self, or what Western psychology calls an ego, an I. And, and that's probably the most disturbing thing to a lot of magicians and occultists who are who are taking an individualistic, um, material, strangely material point of view to spirituality, is that they believe they are an independent, an island, an ego mm -hmm. in this universe, and that they are looking out at, at, at a universe of solid things and changing it, rather than seeing that it is all consciousness, it is all mind that nothing is happening but consciousness, 
And I mean, this is a much deeper issue than we can fully uh, delineate in this one conversation, but that the self itself is the biggest illusion. That that, and, and we have to do magic even on the most elementary level, you have to get over yourself, which gets <laughs> back to the element of playfulness. Let, let's say you want to heal somebody, to put it in the crudest polarized terms, you have to become that person and heal yourself to heal them. Mm-hmm. In the same way I said, you need, if you want to change reality, you could create a very realistic artwork that reflects the change you want to make, and that changes the outer reality. You can't heal someone unless you can totally empathize with them, which is why a narcissist or a sociopath cannot really do magic that is effective, though they will believe they are. And that's why so, yeah. ESP is, uh, that's why we see ESP among empathetic people, because people who are in deep sympathy with one another, deep empathy, um, that the mind, a, a shared mind naturally arises between them. Mm hmm. And I also oh, and- want to jump back for a quick minute here to something else you were talking about, which is um, ethics and mm-hmm. how this connects in. Because if you rebuild your personality according to truth, according to ethical principles, ethical principles are inherently immutable. They are what lasts. So if the consciousness becomes identified with permanent elements, the consciousness acquires characteristics of permanence mm-hmm. whereas if the consciousness identifies with the temporary personality at the point of death when the aggregate dissolves the consciousness will also people will lose consciousness just as we do when we fall asleep and we're dreaming so there's an analog here you know in our conversation these may seem like different levels to pe- or different things to people but they're actually different layers and levels of the same meta concept we're talking about yes yes i totally agree with your point and of course again i don't set out to convert people but as a tantric buddhist i don't think people understand that that requires taking very strict vows of disciplined code of behavior that you never change and if you break any of these vows you have to purify the samaya or the broken karmic pact that you've made and as you say this is what will, that's what will remain when we, when my consciousness leaves my body and I'm reborn as another being. My ethical code will remain, my karma will remain because I'm sticking to these vows. And if you don't have any kind of ethical vows, which anyone can look up what the basic Buddhist precepts are, but then there are deeper tantric vows that is what is permanent. You know, this this personality is just a, a very brief, messy conglomerate of chaos that will quickly fade. But this ethical code, these vows that you take, and you practice them every day, and you keep taking them, that, as you say, is what will jump over the bridge to the next world. Mm-hmm. So that's very, very... And most people have absolutely no code of discipline whatsoever and just like in dream yoga you know with the lucid the lucidity of being able to transition between the waking and dreaming states is analogous to the ability to transition between the embodied and disembodied states right well i mean we have an even another thing we can touch on is 
using the subtle body to go out and perform magic in dreams or using it in shape-shifting rituals or putting oneself in a state of induction in which you send your subtle body out to do magic. That's a very powerful form of magic, and it's kind of a trial run for death. And so that's a very important. And then to do that, again, getting back to this idea of no self, you have to have no fear of losing yourself. You mentioned how much people have a fear of losing this this very concrete idea of being a self or an I. Mm-hmm. And, now, and before we go be, before oh, we go too far, I did promise some of the people in my social media that I would answer some of their questions. So I want to do that absolutely before we continue. So I will begin. With, the, with one question is the age-old question about the difference between religion and magic. And I want to get the question right from uh, Robert Lackstein. Uh, is religion also a form of magic, though religious adherents vehemently deny it? So maybe you can give your views on that, and then I will give mine, because I do think that's a very pertinent question. I would say personally, my point of view is that we're dealing with uh, constructs of thought rather than the lived experience. Again, I'm referring back to the ancient Egyptian perspective. In their culture, there was not a separate, this was not separate. You know, what was done in the temple or what was done in the home, this is not, religion and magic were not seen as separate things. Maybe you could say that religion might be the temple expression, whereas magic would be the per- the expression of personal agency. Uh, mm-hmm. But a perfect example of this is how Egyptian priests would serve, depending on their commitment, you know. But your average Egyptian priest would serve part of the year as a priest in a temple. And then many of them, for the other portion of the year, would travel as an itinerant magician, or stay in their local area uh, doing magical work for people. Now, Mm -hmm. you have somebody on one hand acting as a priest and on the other hand acting as a magician. Why? Because the power to perform this magic is directly related to their relationship with the deity of the temple, which they are directly connected to in the devotional process. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. And, and to, to, I agree with all of that. And then to add to, to this question, I mean, let's take the most clear and obvious example in the Abrahamic religions that all three of them, the three major ones, forbid magic completely in Judaism, Islam, and the various forms of Christianity. They completely ban any form of magic because that's interrupting the demiurge's supposed perfect creation. But a priest, obviously a Catholic priest or even a Protestant evangelical priest, when they are, they are doing magic and Christ was a magician. And it, mm-hmm. it's completely an arbitrary decision that this pagan mystery religion, Christianity, is not a form of magic. So it's, I think we would agree that's just completely a semantic difference. These established right. institutional government-connected religions say that we what we are doing is not magic and what any other religion doing is just magic and i think that's the very simple explanation and 
it's a false dichotomy. There is there isn't a sacred and a secular world. If you're a magician, you know, magic is everywhere. And it is for everyone. I mean, even people who aren't magicians are doing magic all the time, but as I've often said, they're doing it badly. So any any religion is doing a kind of codified institutional magic that refuses to call itself magic. But a Christian prayer is magic. You're you're speaking you're you're doing the same kind of act that a ceremonial magician is doing, except it has been given social approval and merit rather than being condemned. So right. And you see scholars struggling with this all the time, especially uh, I've noticed when you're looking at the time period where alchemy is kind of transitioning into what we know as science, um, because alchemy, alchemy itself was so intertwined with, with mysticism and magic, and it was so blurry. Once you get into the more science-y, um, you know, what we accept as, as being more science it's it's kind of a rocky transition, and, and there is a lot of struggle with those ideas. Yeah, it's it's probably the biggest question of scholars who usually get magic completely wrong. There's a lot of magicians these days that go into academia, and I think they get lost in these sterile clinical questions. But yeah, the topic of whether there is a difference between magic and religion is is probably the most you know, there's tons of, of academic papers on that. But I think it's an irrelevant question. Magic is magic. So, Well, and is there a difference between, uh, between painting and drawing? Is there a difference between playing the lute and playing the drum? Right. Exactly. They're, they're all artistic forms or they're all musical forms. Exactly. So the second question from a Christopher Bickle is do you consider either Dale Carnegie or Napoleon Hill to be magicians? And that may require some historical context. Dale Carnegie and Napoleon Hill were 20th century authors who wrote best-selling books basically about the power of positive thinking. Uh, Dale Carnegie taught these courses about how to influence people. And Napoleon Hill wrote a famous book, you know, Think to Grow Rich, basically. And both of them have very similar ideas. A very elementary level, they're saying that what you think manifests. But that is not really magic. They're not... They, they, it's, it's a very ego-based way of looking at magic, is that simply a human mind, simply thinking something enough will manifest it. I don't believe that that is magic. That that can often be delusion. Just because you keep thinking something doesn't mean it's going to happen. You need to know the divine principles of how to translate that into action. And and neither of these kind of early self-help teachers did that at all. So I don't know what... You, and, and what I pointed out to the person who asked the question was that the secret, this ridiculous best-selling pseudo-magic idea and this idea that you find in the lowest levels of TikTok, you know, manifesting, just I'm sitting here and thinking something, it's going to happen, that is delusional. So I don't know what you think of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. What you said couldn't have, I mean, I don't have a whole lot to add to it personally, except for this, that the whole new thought paradigm, um, it, it grew out of the early New Age movement in America. And um, there are some gems to be found in it. Now, I have a bone to pick with New Thought because of the Kabbalion 
and this 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 book, which was written by William Walker Atkinson, uh, mischaracterizes uh, hermitism. Now we are very passionate about hermitism on this show, and um, you know the great god Thoth Hermes is mm-hmm. has books. You know the the Hermetica. Uh, faithfully represent Egyptian theological concepts couched in Middle Platonic Greek philosophical language. And then there's all, there are actual Egyptian books uh, that are available, which correctly depict Hermetic Egyptian uh, philosophy, theology, and magical practice, which are available. This book does a disservice and, and new thought in general does a disservice to magic because it is implicitly materialistic mm-hmm. and, and and ego fo- focused so if you're engaging in these new thought practices frequently it's going to lead you further into your ego further into your desires and further into identification with material reality absolutely yeah i agree with that completely and i would say that the problem so with these self-help teachers like napoleon hill and dale carnegie they may have useful sort of like nlp on a material level some of their techniques may have a very low sorceress quality Mm -hmm. about them but it's merely to manipulate people it is not to awaken them to reality it's to manipulate them and to control them which again is not honest or ethical so therefore, right. not a good... And yes, so this this whole anthropocentric idea of manifesting or of the secret of all the... And we I think we talked about this in our very first conversation in our first Halloween episode, this, what you're calling new thought, this idea that a, a human being's mind alone, just by thinking something is going to make it happen, is delusional... And it's only going to lead to an egotistical dead end and trap. Mm-hmm. And then what, what people wouldn't want to do, what the antidote to that would be to completely immerse yourself in a tradition, in a lineage, or for instance, to learn everything about a particular deity that you are drawn to, that you want to a- appeal to, to, to aid you, to teach you about the divine art of magic that would require getting out of your ego. And that's what these people never want to do. They just want to completely get more and more self-absorbed. I would, I would um, just to play devil's advocate for a minute. And I've, I've never gotten into new thought and I, I don't follow it, but I, I think I understand kind of the basics. Um, devil's advocate though, psychologically speaking, if someone were to, perhaps say to themselves every day that they were worthless and they were terrible and they were ugly um, as opposed to saying the opposite to themselves on a daily basis over a period of t- a time I would assume that the person who um, was saying those negative things to themselves would uh, find themselves with less opportunities, less friends um, and less happiness, whereas someone who were was thinking those those other thoughts would would be maybe not becoming rich and and being you know the life of the party. Um, I think there would be at least some subtle uh, benefits or 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 drawbacks to doing the opposite. If that makes oh, sense. Oh, I I absolutely agree with that. I mean, what 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 secular psychology would call negative self talk. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. that is the black magic that I can tell you most human beings are doing all the time. They yeah. are 
But this gets into meditation, the necessity of meditation, really. This is not maybe so much magic, but the karmic pattern of negative self-talk and denigrating yourself is a very destructive habit, but it doesn't it changes the outer world that of course if you spend all day in your inner dialogue uh, assailing yourself and thinking of yourself as deficient or inferior of course other people are going to pick up on that mm-hmm. and and the world you live in you are going to create a very negative environment for yourself um on the other hand people that are extremely confident and and optimistic are going to get a much more positive reaction but is that really magic you know or is it's like where where does the line draw from secular psychology mm-hmm. to to the art of magic? So th- I have a magical spin I could put on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so for two things, first of all, it's interesting too, and I almost hate to say this because I don't want anybody with mental health issues to misunderstand what I'm saying. So I need to preface it by that. But a classic indication of a person who's been cursed is the and we're talking about a person who normally doesn't think this way uh, a classic indication that a person's been cursed is a spontaneous development of negative self self idea negative ideation negative self talk strange intrusive thoughts that are and again i'm speaking of a health, psychologically healthy person usually mm-hmm. a magician being targeted by another magician one of the ways right. to identify that is the unexpected intrusive thoughts that are negative and self-destructive absolutely that's Um, a very important practical point we should maybe address how do you know you're being cursed i think that is not mentioned but yes go ahead but that's important i I think it really is and and it's often easier to remedy than people realize it's not as big of a deal because most black magicians are idiots but Absolutely. with that as an aside, I say, I say that all the time. You really have nothing to fear by most people who choose to be a quote black magician because ipso facto they they are a deluded person usually. So you don't really have to worry about them. But it's they like can crit. create they can create some damage. But like you say, it's not a big deal. It's easily deflected yeah, once you and- notice it. It's like criminals. It's like how most criminals are idiots. I mean, you do have your great criminals out there, but most of them are pretty low level and stupid. And it's kind of like that with black magicians. They're such egoists that they can't see beyond their own nose. Now, with the thought thing, what I wanted to mention really quickly was that the one way that creation through thought is effective is when, as you were saying, Nicholas, we come to identify with something more than ourselves. Whether we're, whether we're speaking about Vishnu or Mahavishnu creating the universe through his act of dreaming, or Thoth laying the foundations of reality by the architecture of his think of his thought, mm-hmm. um, when you identify with, or even in Gnostic myth, Enoya, Enoya, the the divine thought of God, which is the creatrix, the Sophia principle, thinking mm-hmm. reality into existence. When you come to identify with something greater of yourself through radical self-negation, again, talking about the negation of the temporary personality, the divine comes to act through you. And if you are identifying with the divinity that has an act in the creation and renovation of the world, then the thought of that divinity expresses itself through your thought as an extension and then that in turn influences reality. But again, that requires certain internal changes that many people are not willing to make. 
Right, right. And and nobody who hasn't done this hard work of inner initiation can can really do magic. And the funny thing is, if you do this work of karmic purification and identification with the divine rather than with the mortal, actually you will have less desires to actually perform particular magical material-oriented goals Mm -hmm. because you'll give up on a lot of that attachment and desire to change the world. You are far more, you, you have a radical sense of acceptance and then you need to use magic much less. So that that's an important point, absolutely. And participating, you, you, it goes from this idea where you are the creator to you are a participant in something greater and in an instrument of something more, which again, through a process that cannot be verbally articulated, you are also that something more is also mysteriously who you truly are or what you truly are right well to to echo what we sort of said before it's very easy for magicians to fall into the postmodern individualistic secular materialistic trap of i am a god i'm cre- i'm becoming my own god there's no such thing as that there there isn't any such thing as that that doesn't exist it's a fiction you can become, you can start to realize that everything is the divinity, but you yourself personally are not your own selfish little divinity of your own. That is a, is a great delusion magicians fall prey to. Yeah, and that's a hard distinction sometimes because, you know, if you do look into the depths of emptiness and, and do see that there is no individual self apart from other things, um, it it can be very um, liberating in in its kind of uh, ability to initiate you into a non-dual way of of looking at reality. Mm-hmm. But right. then there's the there's the trap that we've been kind of touching on, and uh, a very famous Tibetan uh, contemporary Tibetan teacher called it uh, spiritual materialism. He's yes, not around Chagam, anymore. Chagam Trungpa, right. of course. And he was very flawed himself. But I think this point of spiritual materialism is exactly what we're, we're touching on here. Yes, and that, that's most of what modern magic is. That's what most of yes. even the so-called classic uh, 19th century magical orders are teaching a kind of ego-based spiritual materialism. And then if you look at the fruits of their initiatory work, it's selfishness, pettiness, mm-hmm. and a kind, and in a pejorative sense, cultic conformism, elitism in the worst way, a fake elitism. So yeah, that that that's a major problem. And again, why I would caution people: don't get involved in groups, mm-hmm. don't get involved in orders. Look at the real world, study the real world, pursue reality. Don't get into a little bubble of people with an ideology, right? which is what people... Now, these days, people do that a great deal with political ideology, more than spiritual or magical ideology. But, of course, that's even more harmful because it's even more rooted in the material world. Absolutely. So so the, the, the final thing I think we should touch on is most of what you are presented with in magical literature from from these publishing companies that specialize in niche writings about magic. 
most of the classic literature about magic, most of the teachers you've heard of about magic, they are teaching a, a demiurgic, delusive spiritual materialism, again to cite Trungpa. And there is this Sufi phrase, the secret protects itself. Ultimately, these people who think they can find the secrets of magic in a book or in by joining some order and in some vampiric way, you know, finding the the secret and stealing from it. I'm sure you've seen that. I have certainly seen that. Um, you're not going to find magic where you expect to find it. That's a very important rule. Don't think that these mainstream books about magical practice are going to show you what magic actually it is. They're, for the most part, if they make you feel comfortable, if they make you feel good about yourself, if they stroke your ego, they're not giving you actual initiatory wisdom. And I think that's an important uh, yardstick to what is real and what will be grounded. I find more magic in Man Ray and Arthur Rimbaud than many of these fools. Exactly, yes. Because again, getting back to what we were talking about, art Art touches on the metaphysical much deeper than a logical explication of magic, which is why, again, to, to, to get back full circle, a film, a symphony, a photograph, a dance could be a much more potent magical communication than a linear description, this is what magic is. Well, this has been a characteristically excellent conversation. Um, and I think it's especially pertinent for the season and for the time. I do want to ask you, what practical advice would you give someone who is attempting to realize the distinction between the temporary personality and true, pure consciousness? I, I would continue to go back to the advice that I always give, is the first step of any initiatory path to put it as bluntly as I can, if you do not incorporate a daily meditative practice, that is, training of the mind, and in Tantric Buddhism there are actually literally 84,000 different methods of training the mind, if you don't diligently practice meditation, you're not even awake enough to even see what reality is, to even think about magic. So... I would say don't don't even begin thinking in the most elementary way about magic or sorcery because you're like the sorcerer's apprentice with Mickey Mouse and Fantasia. You're going to make a horrendous mistake if you haven't yet begun to diffuse your ego, if you haven't yet begun to disassemble your own illusions, your own neuroses. And one thing... You know, I am very much a traditionalist, going back to ancient magical practices, but one thing, I think I have mentioned this before, I'm not sure if it was on your show, when I was very young and really un beginning to undertake the path of initiation, I had read Israel Regardi speaking in one of his books about, because of Aleister Crowley being such a nut, and his negative experiences with him saying that if you begin a course of initiation, you should, you should go to a psychologist and make sure you're, you're not a complete psychotic or, or crippled by neurotic thinking. And 
I think that's a very valid thing to do, though I don't trust Western therapy. Um, even if you don't do that, you need you have to begin by looking at your own mind in a very critical way. Not not patting yourself on the back about how wonderful you are. Look for your flaws. Look for the errors in your thinking. Be very much more conscious and careful about what you do, what you say. Being a lot more critical of yourself is the beginning of initiation. I'd say that's important. And then the the final thing I'll say to, to show you that magic does work, an illustration of it, when I mentioned that I read this in a book about Crowley where Israel Regardi is saying, if you enter the path of initiation, maybe go to a psychologist and make sure you don't have what he called a complex of some kind. I'm sure you've read that too. So I did that, I was very young, and went to a psychologist who is a Jungian psychologist in the San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles. And I said, and he, and we, he talked to me and he said, well, you don't really seem troubled you don't really seem like you have some psychic issue or you're not, you're, not, you're not faced with some crisis that most people come to me for. What are you here for? And I said, well, I read in this book by this magician, Israel Regardi, that if you enter the path of initiation, you should go under some sort of psychological treatment to get, to get a checkup to make sure you are mentally well. And he laughed and said, and this is the proof of how magic works, he said, you mean my neighbor, Israel Regardi? And in fact, Israel Regardi, who lived in Paris at the time he was writing this book and was Alistair Crowley's secretary, actually lived next door to this Jungian psychologist that I picked out of the blue. And he called him laughingly on this phone and said, you know, you're not going to believe this. this. And he was very big into Jungian synchronicity. And the psychologist said, this is the ultimate Jungian synchronicity. This person who's sitting here in front of me is here because of your recommendation. So he made an appointment with Israel Regardi, and I went to see him about a week later. So wow. that, I think it's important <laughs> to illustrate not only theoretically, how magic works, but that magic does work. If you dedicate yourself to the spiritual path, these things will happen because divine forces, you're in accord with divine forces that will bring you the magical teachings you need. That's an amazing story. How to, <laughs> that's that's <so> awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's wonderful. And I, I should I should add so that things don't get too romanticized or idealized. Mm -hmm. What Israel Regardi taught me was actually quite disappointing. He had become a Reikian therapist at that point and was very just only teaching the superficial basics of Reikian therapy. In other words, if you were sexually satisfied, then you weren't neurotic. Mm -hmm. And I didn't even when I was very young. I didn't think that could be all there is to, uh, yeah. to mental health. So it was it was an amazing experience, but, and this is part of magic too, it was a lesson, it was kind of an anticlimax as well, because he didn't really have any amazing wisdom to impart to me. Well, kill your so, heroes. Right, and that, that I, I didn't dislike him, you know, he was an intelligent person, but he was not the magician he was in the 1920s and 30s, although he certainly practiced all of that and the Golden Dawn kind of thinking. So, 
you know, even when something remarkable like that happens, you have to, again, be down to earth and look at it. What is the lesson there? This amazing thing happened. It's extremely unlikely, perfect Jungian synchronicity, but it didn't lead to some amazing uh, initiatory epiphany either. But it was, it did illustrate something about the uncanny nature of what happens when you enter the magical path. So, in speaking of entering, we perhaps we should end this with orchestrating our three minds to think for the benefit of all sentient beings in the six worlds, that if anything we said have any kind of wisdom or beneficial or auspicious quality, that it will plant seeds in the minds of those who are listening and lead to their worldly happiness, the fulfillment of their beneficial worldly goals, and ultimately to their liberation from suffering. Thank you again, Nicholas. That was that was really great. It was Happy fantastic. Halloween to all. Thank you very much for inviting, and let whatever of value we have said today radiate into the six worlds for the benefit of all beings. And good night. That was Nicholas Shrek for our perennial Halloween episode discussing the mysteries of operative magic and the no-self, the non-self. What can I say? I don't have much to add this time because Nicholas, as usual, was eloquent and insightful, as always. It was a pleasure to have him on, and we are honored uh, that he continues to maintain the tradition of Hallamas with us. Absolutely. It's it's amazing that we've been doing this for four years now with him. He is such a, a great guest, and his episodes are just always so, very popular. There were a lot of gems in there for operative mystics and magicians, too. You listen closely and maybe listen between the lines and you may get even more there. I think a lot of what we discussed is useful in a practical sense. And a lot of the time what's missing in the modern discourse is uh, practical implementation. It's important to be able to make the translation from ideation and theory into doing the thing. Okay, well... I think it's time to move on and it is time for the book review segment and I'm going to handle this one. The book that I picked for today is called The Mechanics of Ancient Egyptian Magical Practice and right off the bat the the title really hooks me. I just like the fact that it's looking at the mechanics of this stuff and it is by Robert Rittner and it's really a a must-have for anyone who's seriously interested in a deep dive into we talked about this a few episodes back getting into the mindset getting into that archaic mindset um, and immersing yourself in it and what i really think is interesting about it is a lot of the things that are talked about in here you can see that they are the ancestors of a lot of stuff that you find today so such things as image making, making of uh, icons and statues and 
uh, things like that. So for instance, um, images are, are were very important in the Egyptian magic. And you, you see that in the Greek magic papyri, but um, you see it, it, it goes way farther back than that. Um, one thing that stood out to me is there's, there are examples of, you know, putting your enemies, the image of your enemies in your shoes so that you're stepping on them um, as you go. And you see very similar things in, coming out of Africa in the modern day with such systems as hoodoo, where you would maybe write someone's name in a piece of paper and stick it in your shoe. Um, there's a direct connection there to to this type of work, and it's really uh, interesting to see this kind of foundation and this structure. Anyway, before I don't want to get too deep into this, but highly recommend this for anyone who wants to take a deep dive into the mechanics of these ancient practices. Um, title again, The Mechanics of Ancient Egyptian Magical Practice by Robert Rittner. And, uh, you know, I always found it interesting how the magical wands are actually boomerang-shaped. I wonder if that's an allusion to the moon, since Thoth is the god of the moon. But either way, it's interesting. In other cultures, of course, you have wands that are just more straight or whatever, but they're they're usually kind of this like boomerang shape in ancient Egypt. It's like that thing in Mr. Rogers, that spell, boomerang, tumerang, sumerang. <laughs> I don't remember that. Well, of course I remember that. <laughs> of course, as a young kid, I'm paying attention to the spells in Mr. Rogers. Well, on that note, um, wishing everybody a very happy Hallow Mass, Halloween, Samhain, Samhain, whatever you want to call it, Dia de los Muertos, um, All Saints Day. Keep in mind that this is the season of Scorpio. So... What we're really doing is celebrating the festival of sex and death. So you have really until around Thanksgiving when the th season of Sagittarius begins. So you have the whole month of November. That's the thing that people don't, I think, often realize. They tend to celebrate October as spooky month when they don't know that astrologically speaking, it's more November. So on that note, be safe, have fun enjoy all right thank you for listening and we'll see you in the next episode